Today's first reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 16 to 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, send your spirit now on all of us. Drown wherever we are, this church, our homes, wherever we might be watching. 
that what is spoken and what is heard might testify to you and show to us the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we ask this. Amen. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The crucifixion of Jesus was a spectacle. It was a show. It was something to watch. They took him out to a place called the Skull, probably because it's where they killed people. And the place called the Skull was next to the road into the city so that everyone could see what happened there. The question we're going to ask today is, when you look at Jesus dying on the cross, what is it that you see? The cross was a spectacle, a show, a sign. But what did the sign mean? Pontius Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, who sent Jesus to die, he made it very clear what the sign was supposed to mean. He wrote out his interpretation and nailed it to the cross for everyone to see. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And Pilate was angry, after all. As Tim showed us last week, he knew Jesus wasn't guilty of any capital crime, but he caved under political pressure to kill him. But like all cowards, Pilate is mad at everyone else for his own failure of will. So he turns the knife on the people who he thinks forced his hand. He writes it out in three languages, the local Aramaic, the regional trade language, Greek, and the Latin of the imperial capital, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's crucifying Jesus and insulting the Jews all in one go. Two birds, one stone. You want him crucified? Fine. Here's your king. And the leaders are all like, no, no, that's not what we meant. Say he said he was the king. Like, here's what happens to imposters. And Pilate answers like them like you would a child. What's done is done. Pilate knew what the spectacle was supposed to mean. It was an insult to the whole Jewish people. Like, here's your king. Because the thing about the death of the cross is, it was humiliating. It was humiliating. That fact can be hard for us to fully get. Because we're 2,000 years removed. Crosses for us are jewelry, they're decoration. They're a canvas for inspirational messages or pretty pictures. You can buy cross-shaped wall art on clearance at overstock.com. And we have no trouble understanding that the cross hurt, but in Jesus' day, the death of the cross was an unspeakable terror. An unspeakable terror known as a uniquely vile death. Crucifixion was well known, but it was considered distasteful even to talk about. Like, there are plenty of awful things in our culture that you know about, but you're not going to bring them up in polite company. The Roman statesman Cicero called the cross the sumum supplicium, the most extreme penalty. And it wasn't the most extreme because it hurt the most, although I guess you could make a case. The Romans had plenty of ways to inflict unimaginable pain. Now, it's what crucifixion did. Crucifixion was the most extreme penalty because it made a man into a thing. Crucifixion took a him and turned him into an it. 
And that dehumanization was the common element of all the various forms of crucifixion. Because you see, there wasn't just one standard procedure for doing it. Because of Christian art, we tend to picture the, a cross as a vertical bar with a crossbar a little way down. But crosses could be shaped like a capital T or a Y. They could just be a pole. People were crucified head up and head down with nails or ropes or both. The ancient Greeks nailed people to planks. What made crucifixion crucifixion is that it was death by suspension. Death by suspension. And that was the perversity of the cross. No matter what shape it took, death by suspension combined three elements. Gravity, time, and visibility. Gravity, it was a death where your own weight killed you. Time, in the end, when your lungs or your heart gave way under the pressure of your own body. And visibility, people watched. People watched. That was the point. The watching was the point. Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull. That's the thing about the cross. It was a spectacle of dying. We're all dying, of course. To be alive is to be moving toward the grave, but you don't say someone's dying, like actively dying, until you can see what's going to kill them. A terminal illness, a fatal wound. And the cross took that moment where you know how the story ends, but not exactly when, and it stretched it out in public. It's snuff theater. About four decades after Jesus, some Jewish refugees got captured trying to escape the besieged city of Jerusalem where a rebellion had broken out. And the Roman general Titus let his troops blow off steam by crucifying the captives in front of the city walls. He thought it might encourage them to surrender. 500 people a day. A historian at the time recorded that they ran out of crosses for people and they ran out of room for crosses. It was a frenzy, the soldiers just nailing people to poles in whatever poses they could imagine, like kids torturing Barbies. And the metaphor works like dolls. The death on the cross turned men and women into objects. Except objects isn't quite right. The cross turned people into signs. That's the essence. It took living people, unique souls with minds and wills and personalities that had never been and never will be again, and it nailed them to wood. It made them billboards. Because to be crucified was to be hung up like you were a picture. And the message of the sign was, this is dirt. This is meat. This is not a life. This is not a person. And the deeper message of that sign was, cry all you want because heaven is empty and no one is coming to save you. That's why it was a punishment from which Roman citizens were supposed to be immune. It was reserved for the lower classes and more especially slaves. It was known as the slave's death the special punishment for someone whose body already belonged to another person. So this, 
this slave, this no person, this not life, this meat, this dirt. This is the king of the Jews, Pilate said, in three languages so everybody who saw would know. That's the spectacle Pilate wanted. That's the show he put on. That's the sign he wrote. And what wrecks me is that John, the author of our gospel, he doesn't disagree. John agrees. The cross is a spectacle of dying and shame. He doesn't say as much, but that's only because he's talking to an audience that's as familiar with crucifixions as you and I are with billboards. He doesn't tell us what it's like to be crucified, go into the details of what happened, because the people who heard the gospel knew that already. They walked past it on their way to work. They knew what it looked like. They knew how obscene it was. And John is saying, you know, this horrible, despicable thing, that happened to Jesus. Tim lamented last week, and I so agree, that sometimes in our rush to say what the cross means, we can underplay what it was. Like we look at the glory of the salvation one on the cross and pass over the ugliness of the cross itself. But that's just the thing, because what the cross was is what it means. Yes, something glorious happened there. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. But the glory of what happened doesn't change the fact that the cross was hideous and shameful and horrible beyond description. The salvation that was won there happened because the cross was hideous and shameful and horrible. And John wants us to know it. John doesn't dwell on the subjective details like how Jesus felt. What he wants us to know is what happened to Jesus. That he was made to carry his own cross, that he was crucified between two others and in front of his loved ones, including the beloved disciple who is the author of the gospel himself. That he ensured his mother would be cared for by John. And what struck me most profoundly in preparing this passage to share with you That Jesus was naked. I should say here, if you've suffered sexual violence, it is okay if you need to hit pause and step away. Because that's what's happening here. Jesus was naked on the cross. And how do we know? Because John tells us the soldiers gambled for his clothes. They stripped him completely. It's impossible to overstate what this means. But let's start with what this violent denuding would mean for Jesus as a faithful Jew. In Jesus' day, a Jewish man could not pray the Shema, the most essential prayer of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He couldn't pray it when he was naked. The prayer was and remains a cornerstone of Jewish piety, the most declaration, basic declaration of who God is. It was said twice daily. It was often the last words of a dying person. And with the Shema, a Jewish man could consecrate virtually any time or place as holy by invoking God's name. But not if he was exposed. In his bed, in the field, he had to cover himself first. A Jewish man could not pray the Shema naked. To do so was seen as a desecration of God's name. It would be like a flasher taking the Eucharist. 
which means that the nudity of the cross robbed Jesus of prayer. The cross took away Jesus' ability to declare the name of the Lord. From Jesus, have mercy. But the degradation goes even further. Scripture tells us that when God made our first parents, they were naked and weren't ashamed. But when they sinned, the first thing they did was make garments to hide themselves. And we all cover ourselves. Yeah, to greater and lesser degrees, but as we choose, we decide which parts of us other people see. And to take that away from someone, to expose someone, is a fundamental violation. And this happened to Jesus. And this happened to Jesus in the sight of his loved ones, in front of his mom. John wants us to know that the soldiers stripped Jesus entirely, and the people who loved him most, his mother, his aunt, his friend Mary, the beloved disciple, they stayed near while the others ran. Think about the cruelty of this. Paintings of the cross often show Jesus high in the air, like Renaissance art, high in the air at a distance from the onlookers who are kind of beneath his feet, like a billboard actually. But the standard Roman cross only lifted the condemned a foot off the ground because it didn't take much for gravity to do its work. And the high cross, which amplified the disgrace, lifted him three feet. And it seems from the detail of the passage in our passage of a sponge on a stick that that's probably the height that Jesus was at. This is the mind-shattering cruelty of the cross. Your beloved, nailed to a pole, naked, three feet off the ground, and you're there. Of course you're there. You're not going to leave them to die alone. This can take days. How do you spend the hours? And where do you look? You don't want to violate him further with your gaze. But are you going to turn away? You see others looking, just passing by, commuters glancing at a billboard. They rake your beloved over with mean eyes. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't look away. And you can't look. Well, it's a fact. It's a fact that Christians have always had trouble looking at the cross because it's that horrifying. Think about how the crucifixion has been painted and sculpted. The Jesus we know from images is stripped, yes, but almost always with a loincloth guarding his most basic privacy. But that's not how it happened. Which means that the literal truth of the cross, the cross as it happened, is so obscene that Christians have had to edit it and clean it up and sanitize it in order simply to look at it. To behold Jesus lifted up for 2,000 years. But a sanitized cross is not a saving cross because it's the obscenity of the cross that saves. Does that shock you to hear? Because it shocks me to say. The obscenity of the cross is a human being made in the image of God, rendered into an object for display. It is a pornography of violence rather than sex. And the reason this porn saves us, the reason this story is a gospel, which is good news, and I mean good news for you and me, 
is who is on display. Because the person hanging on the cross in John 19 is not just another nameless man among the countless victims of history. Now, the person humiliated this way, the person rendered a no person, meat, not life, dirt, the person rendered obscene, is the word of God in flesh. The gospel author John, he knows that everything turns on this issue of who Jesus is. His gospel begins with Jesus' mistaken identity as the world's most basic problem. Chapter 1, verse 10, the Son of God was in the world, but the world didn't know him. And for the entire first half of the gospel, John is showing us signs that Jesus did that prove who he is. Water to wine, walking on water, feeding thousands, healings, bringing the dead back to life. John shows us these signs so that we will have no doubt that Jesus is God in flesh. And we need to know. We need to know. We need to be sure about who he is or we won't understand his last and greatest sign, which is the sign he makes of himself on the cross. We won't understand it because on the face of it, there's nothing miraculous about the cross. Anybody can die. It's not hard. But when you know who it is that's dying there, then you realize that you're seeing a miracle so profound, it makes walking on water look like a parlor trick by comparison. Because all the other signs pointed to Jesus' divinity by showing his mastery over the material world, the control of a creator over his creation. Of course, the one who made water can turn it into wine or walk on it. Of course, the one who made life itself could heal bodies or raise them from death. But John knows where his story is going. And so he shows us these signs of divine control precisely so that we will believe the otherwise unbelievable sign of divine submission on the cross. This is not a creator dominating his creation. This is a creator voluntarily succumbing to his creation at its very worst. Melito of Sardis, a second century bishop, put it like this. He said, He who hung the earth hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon a tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. Oh, strange murder, strange crime. The master has been treated in unseemly fashion, his body naked and not even deemed worthy of a covering. Therefore, the lights of heaven turned away and the day darkened that it might hide him who was stripped upon the cross. The word of God who spoke creation into existence, who made meat and dirt, is made meat and dirt. In the crucified Jesus, the God of glory becomes a perversion. This is what Paul means in Philippians 2 when he says that Jesus was equal to God but didn't hold on to that equality and instead emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The sovereign of time and space didn't just take the form of a slave. He died the slave's death. When Paul says Jesus emptied himself, he's not talking about the physical pain of the cross. He's talking about someone equal to God dying a death of utter submission. It's the shame of it. The shame of God becoming human garbage. 
And if you love Jesus, you instinctively recoil from that. You want to protect him, defend him, his honor, his glory. Like Peter saying, no, no, Jesus, you're not not going to be crucified. Love of Jesus can make us make the cross all about rugged, noble suffering, like Mel Gibson's character dying valiantly at the end of Braveheart or something. We're fine with Jesus being hurt for us, but not humiliated. But don't dishonor Jesus' sacrifice by trying to cover up what he exposed for us. Don't force on him the very dignity that he gave up for our sakes. Don't beautify the cross with words of eloquent wisdom, as our reading this morning said. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a, that's a striking caution. How do you empty the cross of its power? You make it pretty. You make it socially acceptable. It seems to be human nature to reach up for God, to think that he must live just above the greatest heights to which we can attain. So if you reach the top of money, beauty, power, intellect, whatever, you might grab hold of God if you just stretch a little bit further. It's natural to think the people who breathe that rarefied air are closer to divinity. But when Jesus came into the world, he didn't skim the top of human experience to get the cream He went all the way down to the dregs. And that saves us because it shows there is no limit to the reach of God's love. No point at which he says, I've given this much, but no more. No point at which he holds himself back from being with us and for us, a sacrifice freely offered. As the great theologian Gregory Nazianzen said, that which he has not assumed, he has not redeemed. That which he has not assumed, he has not redeemed. And the cross shows us there's no limit to what Jesus will assume, that is, bring into himself and heal. Literally nothing and no one that he disdains to redeem. That's the work that he declares finished at the end. On the cross, we see a sovereignty so vast that it encompasses submission. And on the cross, we see a holiness so profound that it welcomes desecration. As Paul says in our reading, the world did not know God through wisdom, so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is, the shame of crucifixion to save those who believe, to save those who see the love of God and the obscenity of the cross. When you look at Jesus... Dying on the cross, what is it that you see? The cross was a spectacle, a show, a sign. But what did the sign say? Pilate thought he was making Jesus into a sign. He didn't know that Jesus, by submitting to the cross, was making himself into a sign too. The last sign of Jesus. And Pilate's sign said, Behold the power of the King of the Jews. And Jesus' side said, Behold how God loves you. This is my final Sunday at Little Trinity and my last sermon to you. Not forever, I hope, but at least for the foreseeable future. And it's bittersweet because though I'm excited about the season of ministry ahead, I love you and I will miss you very much. 
I want to thank you for receiving me and Natalie and our girls as part of this church family for the last five years. You have nurtured and discipled us in ways that you'll probably never know. And I'm especially grateful to Tim as a supervisor and pastor, colleague, and friend, and to the rest of the incredible ministry team I had the privilege to work with. They love you, and they care about you, and they think about you constantly. But all of you have shaped me as a pastor, priest, and preacher, and I so wish I could see you right now. Thank you so, so much for everything. Little Trinity will always have a special place in my heart. And it is humbling and an honor to leave you by proclaiming Christ crucified. A preacher couldn't ask for better last words. So as I go, I want you to hear this. Each and every one of you is worth what Jesus gave for you on that obscene pole. You are worth it. You are worth it. You aren't worth it because of anything you've done, any more than any of your failures could ever disqualify you from God's love. You're worth it because he did it. His action makes you worthy. The value of anything is what someone will pay for it, and you were bought with the price of God's blood shed and God's glory laid down. It forgives your sins and calls you to holiness. And everyone else you will ever meet is a treasure of equal worth. And everything, everything follows from this. Knowing the honor of God's love should make you throw your shoulders back and lift your chin up and look everyone in the eye. But knowing the price of God's love should drop you to your knees. Because if it's true that if we're the beneficiaries of such a gift of grace, then what can the rest of life be long, but one long, imperfect act of thanksgiving? What God has done for us makes everything else pale in comparison. What earthly honor, achievement, power, wealth could add to it? Why would we strive for those things then? And what earthly embarrassment or failure, poverty, disability could take away from it? Why would we avoid such things? In ourselves, we are nothing. We have nothing. We can do nothing that time will not erase. But in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are everything. We have everything. We can do everything. That cross was a barren tree, but by faith you have become its fruit. So I urge you with all my heart, turn to Jesus. Over and over and over, make turning to Jesus the essential habit of your life. So that whatever else you're doing, not a day goes by, not an hour goes by without you drawing close to the Lord. Call on his name, repent your sin, plead plead his mercy, ask the Holy Spirit to guide and strengthen you. Prayer doesn't have to be long, it just has to come from the heart. Don't be afraid. Think of the cross. Think of what he gave for you. He was faithful to his own end and he will be faithful to yours. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.